Welcome to St. James Lutheran Church and School right here in the heart of Chicago. I pray that you find hope and peace in the message of Christ and Him crucified for you in your life right now. Thank you for listening. And please, if you'd like to support the mission going on right here, uh, please go to our webpage, stjames-lutheran.org to donate. Thank you. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Heavenly Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. One of the great problems of our present moment, I think, is our propensity towards distraction. We live in the era of the smartphone, and therefore we live in the era of infinite scroll, constantly distracted by next tweet, the next article, the next email, the next text, on and on and on. And I think it really underscores our present moment. Although the phenomenon itself is not necessarily anything new. Way back in the 1980s, uh, there was a book called uh, Amusing Ourselves to Death, which talked about this very phenomenon. The idea that we uh, don't think about hard things and we don't wrestle with difficult concepts because ultimately we're entertained at all moments of our day from minute to minute, from day to day, from hour to hour. We want to avoid those difficult subjects in our lives, so therefore we distract ourselves to get away from it. Blaise Pascal, who was a uh, Christian philosopher and also a mathematician, kind of interestingly, pointed out the same idea. He said that all of humanity's problems stem from our inability to sit quietly in a room alone. And I think if we even contemplate sitting alone in a room with just our thoughts, many of us begin to feel anxious already, right? We don't like to be left by ourselves to wrestle with concepts of life and death, eternity, the universe, God, etc. And so we don't sit quietly. We distract ourselves to avoid those kinds of conversations. But ultimately, that's not what Christianity encourages us to do, right? Christianity encourages us not to necessarily just be happy, but instead to wrestle with difficult questions. In fact, C.S. Lewis often <coughs> remarked upon this when he said, I don't go to religion to be happy. He said, I always knew a bottle of port could do that. Instead, if you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I don't recommend Christianity. The reason why I bring that all up is because this week's readings are profoundly uncomfortable, right? They actually force us to wrestle with difficult questions. And when the Bible gets dark or kind of sharp-edged, like it does in today's parables, I encourage you to kind of push forward, right? Because ultimately, being cut by God's word a little bit, like we will be today in our Matthew text, will allow us to see the path forward, to be led to the place where God wants us to be. So we turn our attention to Isaiah first. And in Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah has some sharp words for Israel. He points out that this vineyard was created, and time and time again, God provided everything that was needed for this vineyard to flourish, and yet the opposite happens. So to think about this another way, it says, <clears throat> what Isaiah is saying is that God, time and time again, had rescued Israel, had shown Israel his grace and his mercy, had cared for them as a people, and yet Israel responded to God's faithfulness with their own unfaithfulness. So whenever we think about Israel, we shouldn't think this is just a them problem, but instead the church is actually identified as the new Israel. So these words are for us as much as they are for them. So how does, it, 
<coughs> Isaiah address Israel, and by extension, how does he address us? He says, let me sing for my beloved this love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones, planted choice vines within it. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. So who is the beloved? That much is clear. This is God, right? This is the Lord God of Israel. And he does what God does all the time for the church. He cares for it. He plants this rich vineyard. He gives it everything it needs to flourish, to grow. And yet, in spite of all that work that God did on behalf of the vineyard, only wild grapes come forth. And I think that we see ourselves in this story maybe just a little bit, right? We recognize all that God does, and yet, continually, we bring forth wild grapes in our relationships with those around us, in our family lives, in our work lives, whatever the case is, right? We all know that feeling of being trapped doing what we aren't supposed to be doing despite everything God has done for us. St. Paul hits on this very idea. He says, the good that I would do, I don't do, and yet the evil that I don't want to do, that's exactly what I keep on doing. That's what I am addicted to doing. And yet, in the midst of that very idea, I think there is encouragement to be had here, right? Isaiah still calls God friend, beloved, right? There's an idea that that relationship is still there, and that's what Isaiah is calling out to God through the lens of. Remember a few weeks ago, there were those workers in the vineyard who were upset at having received the same wage as those who had come later in the day, right? They didn't do a full day's work, but they got a full day's pay. How does the master there refer to those workers? Friend. He refers to them in this relationship of trust and care, even when we are being unfaithful, difficult to work with, and grumbling. So instead of breaking fellowship, I think God here is trying to guide us a little bit, right? Offer two words, the law and the gospel, in the midst of this passage. The law tells us something straightforward, right? Only wild grapes have come forth from this vineyard. That's not what the vineyard is supposed to be doing. But who is <clears throat> pointed to here? Who is um, characterized by these wild grapes? It's wayward Israel, right? That's the point of what he's trying to get at. Leadership has led people astray. It's put them down the wrong path. And how heartbreaking must it be for God to set the table, to have everything ready to go, and yet over and over again, see Israel walk away, to reject what he has done. In fact, even more than this, to reject his messengers themselves, to put the prophets and the patriarchs to death. That's exactly what they do. They reject worship, they reject his messengers, they reject God and the various ways that he continually cared for them, saves them, and reaches out to them. But again, it's not a them problem. We do the same thing as well from time to time, right? We fail to prioritize the word. We think we have it all figured out, that we've learned it all in Sunday school, and therefore we don't need to go back to God's word and see what he has to say about things. Maybe we fail to prioritize worship, thinking we've got many things to busy ourselves with, to distract ourselves with. 
Maybe we feel like we know where we can find God best in our hearts, in nature, in whatever, you know, thing that we like to do. And ultimately, these are all the same root problem. We're avoiding the hard things in favor of the easy things, entertaining ourselves to death, busying ourselves with little responsibilities, the Google Calendar, etc. So that's the fundamental idea. We continually busy ourselves. We load ourselves up with many things in place of the one necessary thing. And that's the detriment of our spiritual lives, of our souls, of our relationship with God. And so that's exactly how we find ourselves in that position of wayward Israel, lost in the many competing voices of this world rather than hearing God's voice in our day-to-day experience. Israel was also called to be holy, to be set apart, to be a beacon of hope and light to the nations. And yet over and over again, what's really interesting is they would bring, sometimes literally, many gods from culture into the temple. They would allow the other things that vie for their attention to take up space in God's house household, and thereby distract from the centrality of God's promises and his life-giving words. That's what we do as well, constantly loading up, crowding out God's voice with the many voices of culture and of our day-to-day lives. But here's where Jesus kind of inverts the story, right? Flips the script, so to speak. There's gospel in this passage as well. Just because Israel wandered away doesn't mean that that's what the church does today. The church is, in fact, going to do the opposite. We're going to hear these promises and allow for the church to become the life-giving vineyard that God has always intended it to be. Indeed, the church is actually that place where we hear sins are forgiven, where we banish those many voices of culture in order to listen to God's voice. And what does God's voice say? It says that Christ has died. Christ has risen. That victory is sure. It's certain. Nothing can rob us over of that victory. And ultimately, God places us in the vineyard in order to continually hear those promises. Not to work more, not to continue to harry ourselves and to busy ourselves, but instead to finally come to a place of rest. Remember, Jesus is the one who says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is gentle and lowly for those of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So being in the vineyard means God has put us into a place of abundance, a place of rest, a place of forgiveness and mercy. So now those good grapes that are grown within the vineyard are actually based on what God has done for us rather than the other way around, right? The good grapes are things that God has planted, watered, grown, and now they produce a wine that overflows out of the church into the lives of those around us, right? Intoxicating the nations, becoming that beacon of hope, of light in the midst of culture. That's exactly what we're called to be. And Jesus uses that very language then in the parable that he has in store for us. You see, no one would have missed the continuity between Isaiah 5 and what Jesus is saying here to the crowds. 
this owner in the parable sends a series of messengers into the vineyard of Isaiah 5 to collect rent from the vineyard. But what happens to those messengers over and over again? They're abused, they are stoned, they are killed for the sake of their master. So who are those people? Well, that part's easy, right? They're the prophets, they're the patriarchs, they're the messengers that God sent to Israel. That part is pretty easy to understand. So they're the ones that God has sent to collect fruit in the vineyard and bring it back. But what happens time and time and time again? They're killed, they're cast out, they're rejected. And this is where Jesus uses that context in a really interesting way. Because we, the audience, know exactly what's going to happen to the next messenger that's sent along. And this owner of the vineyard sends not a messenger, but his own son, thinking that they'll respect him. And we all know what's going to happen to this next person that's sent. So what did the tenants do? They seize the son. They kill the son. They cast him out of the vineyard. In a last desperate move on behalf of humanity, God sends his son, and we are struck by how insane it is that he sends his son to die for the sake of this vineyard that he loves so much. But what is this trying to tell us? What is this teaching us? Well, Jesus Christ was sent into the world in order to buy the vineyard back. The vineyard is the church. And ultimately, humanity's rejection of the Son, their killing of the Son, the ending of what they think is God's offer of love, actually becomes something far greater. The Lord of life is put to death on a cross, and this has the paradoxical effect of winning life for all. So man's rejection of God isn't the end of the story, and in fact, it's through that very rejection of God that life is one, hope is one, a sure foundation is set for the world. Our defiant no is responded to with God's loving yes. And so in this parable, Jesus gives us this really interesting preview of the resurrection, right? He says that God's going to take away the vineyard from those wicked tenants. He's going to give it to someone else, someone who will render to God their fruit in due season. And then he quotes from scripture again by saying the very stone that the builders rejected has in fact become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. The cornerstone is Christ Jesus. That much is obvious, right? He is the one rejected by the builders and yet he becomes the very foundation of our hope of our confidence, of our confession of faith, and he himself is the assurance of life everlasting. If he is risen, then we too will rise again. So he's the one upon whom we build, and that changes everything about our lives. It changes our hope for the future, the way we see one another as a resurrection people, holy and precious in God's sight once again. And then, I think with that, comes an invitation, like a question, if you will, right? The question is this, will you allow yourself to be distracted by the many things of this life? Will you amuse yourself to death? Will you bring small gods into your soul, thereby creating for yourself an identity? Or will you be like these other tenants that Jesus mentions? The ones who give God his fruit in due season. 
And I think ultimately, this invitation is not one we need to be afraid of because spiritual fruit is actually all about Christ and not about us, right? Spiritual fruit is about relying more and more on Christ Jesus rather than upon ourselves. It's about building on Christ the cornerstone. And it's actually a radical claim that the church makes. We'll hear a very similar thing in Advent in a few weeks. John the Baptist will point out, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But he'll also say, he must increase and I must decrease. So as we return to Christ, the cornerstone, the rock of our salvation, over and over again, we'll find that we are growing in Christ, yielding spiritual fruit that he has planted, he has watered, he is growing even now, and we'll find that those small identities we create for ourselves actually decrease in light of who Christ is. And I think this is shocking for a number of reasons, but namely because we live in a very self-centered moment. We live in the uh, era of the ego, where it's all about ourselves, what we want, what we can post and curate on social media, et cetera, et cetera. And therefore, that's exactly why this is challenging, because it means less of our own desires and more of what God desires for us. But I think that's a wonderful thing to embrace. St. Irenaeus said, the glory of God is man fully alive. So actually, as we look to Christ, the cornerstone, we find what it means to be fully alive, to be at peace with God, and therefore to love one another in the fullest sense. And I think that's ultimately then how we work this into our, our theme, building on Christ impacting lives, because ultimately this is all about simply living out our vocation as members of the vineyard. We are in the vineyard. Christ has displayed a crazy love in dying for the vineyard, buying it back because it's holy and precious. And within that vineyard, our sins are daily and richly forgiven. We are given a peace that surpasses all understanding that simply can't be found in the many competing voices of culture. And we're able to experience that week in and week out as we gather together as church and hear that our sins are forgiven, receive a meal that Christ himself prepares, and to be brought together in communion and fellowship with God and with one another. That is a miraculous gift that's not to be taken for granted. So as we think then about the work that God has in store for us, both our day-to-day work and the work here at St. James that he has given us uniquely, Embrace that challenge that God offers to bring something countercultural to culture, to bring hope and peace that are round, grounded in a God who does not remain far off, but instead becomes incarnate, loving us in the closest way one can, and bring that message of gospel peace, gospel hope, gospel mercy from the vineyard into the world around you. And that's how we'll find that we've yielded good grapes when that wine that's found within the church overflows into the world and the lives around us. As we gladly embrace that work, that's what ultimately working in the vineyard means. So may God bless you in the work of building upon Christ the cornerstone, our sure foundation. And may we, the church, the new Israel, ultimately continue to grow in love of God, in love of one another, 
as we embrace working together in the vineyard this task that God has given us to do. <clears throat> Amen. And now may the peace that surpasses all understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.